Christopher and I, and all of us at TDPS, are still grieving the loss of my dear friend and our beloved premier party person, Anne Rice. But my mother's literary legacy gave birth to a diverse and wonderful community of readers and fans who continue to celebrate her work online. We invite you to join them on the Facebook page dedicated to Anne's legacy. That's where you'll receive the latest updates on new editions of her work and all the exciting changes coming to the AnneRice.com website. Also on the Anne Rice Facebook page, you can join the mailing list to receive all the latest news and information about her forthcoming celebration of life in New Orleans. That's at facebook.com slash Anne Rice fan page, no spaces. If you believe, as we do, that Anne's work is as immortal as her characters, then join us at Anne Rice fan page on facebook.com. See you there. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Every time we do our intro, I think, God, I have a gay voice. And I'm proud of it. You do the most Newt Breck artery newscastery <laughs> voice of ev- that you ever do when we start the show. Is yes, this because are you trying to overcompensate for your belief that you have gay voice? There's nothing wrong with gay voice. Do I have gay voice? You have your voice. Which is just its own you special have a creation. N- inimitable voice. <laughs> yeah, look, I think we're both huge gays. I think I there's actually, nothing. Oh, that's yeah. obviously so it's obviously a gay voice because it's mine, but yeah, I think I have the most imitable voice. I I think that is one of the givens of my voices. It's very easy to imitate. People have been imitating me. My whole life. My sister does amazing impersonations I, of me. I was going to say, I've never seen anybody do an amazing impersonation of you. My sister once played Mrs. Mortimer, I believe is the character's name, in the Lillian Hellman play, um, The Children's, the Children's Hour. Hour. Yeah. And... Um, quite enjoyed her performance. I thought she did a wonderful job. And a theater friend of ours was at the same performance. And she came up and congratulated Sarah in front of me and said, that is the best impersonation of Eric I have ever seen. (laughs) And I was like, wait, what? And it was apparently she had based the aging, um, horrible old woman that she was playing (laughs) in that play on me. I was still in my 20s, I think, at the time. It was like, oh, great, because she was in high school, so I must have been like a freshman in college. Charming. And and I was still, even then, an old hag. Um, But, but... Right. <laughs> Even then, an old hag. An right. Eric Shaw Quinn right. story. All, an old hag, then and always. How did you get like this? How did I get like what? Well, you know, how did you develop this imitable personality? Honestly, it just sort of 
sprang forth fully formed like one of Zeus's children from his forehead. <laughs> like I just, blam, there I was. Like I always have had this voice. Like I, I always tell the story of people when I answered my parents' telephone, people thought I was my mother's mother. <laughs> How old were you? I was, you know, five. <laughs> Six years old, like, Leola, is Jeannie there? I would be like, <laughs> click. <laughs> I was not as good-natured about it when I was six as I no. am now, but it was, I I kind of always had this kind of, mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember the name of the character from the Our Gang characters, um, who had Froggy, I think was his name. He was the kid who had the voice that was like, I always had a strange sort of voice. Anyway, it was always bigger and Lots of volume to it and yes. and deeper than you would expect. And so I, I I look back on it and I think it must have been so disturbing for adults to be around <laughs> me. Like, I can't imagine if a child came in and spoke to me in this voice that I would be like, oh, hi, kid. I would be like, oh, Marin, Marin. Uh, yeah, it yeah. was really, it's kind of, yeah, so it always, and, and then the personality I landed on being who I wanted to be pretty early on. I was like, yeah, this works for me. I'm just going to do this. It can, mm -hmm. If it works for anybody else, that'll be great, but I'm going to do this. I think it was Maud. Oh, well, Maud I identified with because I already sounded like her. Right. And she was, she, I was bullied a lot as a kid, mm -hmm. and she dealt with people by being b verbally, by having really witty, but disarmingly um, mm -hmm. sharp responses to people. And I really got that. Mm -hmm. I used to call it, um, there was a thing they called the, the Ooh game, I called it. It was in, there's a tradition in, I think, old black culture in, in the South called doing the dozens. Mm. It was a defense, as it was taught to me. Mm -hmm. I don't speak as an expert, but it was a defense among um black people who were slaves that mm -hmm. the, the 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 overseers would try and provoke the young mm -hmm. men into into responding so that they could discipline them mm -hmm. harshly both in front of other people but also to break their spirit and they would insult their mothers and insult mm -hmm. their families and doing the dozens was a way of saying terrible things ab about your family or whatever in a in a lighthearted way mm. so that you would come to see it as humor and mm -hmm. not as something that you needed to respond to to defend your family's honor so that you wouldn't get beaten or killed or disciplined by the people who were, you know, holding you yeah. captive. It, it, it was yeah. a hideous tradition, but it is translated into ongoing culture and mm -hmm. was part of something that I was exposed to as the as I guess a positive result of desegregation in schools mm -hmm. in the South. Um and so I got in the habit of it with mm -hmm. the other kids that I was going to school with. They were doing it. I called it the ooh-law game. I didn't know that it was called doing the dozens until years later in yeah. a history class or something where I was taught about it. But you would say something and somebody would say something smart back and everybody would go, ooh-law. Mm -hmm. And that was your sort of reward for being. Mm -hmm. So I called it Maud and the ooh-law game as being really important to me in kind of figuring out how to navigate being, you know, a skinny little 
white gay kid in mm-hmm. the South in the early seventies. It was it was it was you know like growing up yeah. on a hand grenade range. So yeah. I had to sort of brace myself for a lot of I guess threats, mm-hmm. you know, and and finding a way to deal with those in a humorous way. That was also disarming to your attacker, yeah. but that didn't get you punched Right, was kind of the beginning of, of that sort of, yeah. I guess, that sort mm-hmm. of personality. I don't know. Well, you know, I think that uh, I, I, had an ex- I was bullied to a certain degree, but I have to say, and I mean this seriously, experiences like yours put mine into perspective. Also, in just talking to what other people went through in high school and early years— in their early years of school, they just had a lot worse than I did. I mean, I was I was desperately insecure and also very much aware that I was gay and not wanting to be gay, just trying to... I was bisexual. I was going to make bisexuality work in some way. I was going to whatever, date women as much as I possibly could. Um, but when you get out into the world, and I think when you start to make a community of other gay friends and people start to share their stories like you just did... It really makes you realize what you went through, but also what you didn't go through. You know, like everybody had their own experience and whatever. Sure. But and I hope things have progressively gotten better. I I don't know, but I hope that kids are not subjected to what I was subjected to. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was that age, I, I wouldn't wish that on children. I, I just don't think children should have to endure that. But like, you know, like the it was a daily beating. God. You know, like it was a regular kind of occurrence. Bigger kids or kids your age, like kids who like just for being different. Like yeah. it whole. It was just sort of an ongoing. It was the way in which violence was the way in which I experienced mm. school and the world. Like I didn't go to the bathroom at school, maybe ever. Like after a certain point, like after mm. like say third grade, I just waited until I got home. Oh my god! Because it was not. It was. Too risky an environment, yeah, um, for for that sort of thing. But yeah, it was it was it was a very unpleasant kind of experience. I I was sort of waiting on school to be over. It was not yeah. positive. And then you know, and then I turned sixteen, and suddenly the other kids got me, and I was that was the point where my my personality really crystallized yeah. because the other kids started to see that oh, he's actually really talented and funny. They still hated me for being. Different mm. and probably gay. They didn't quite have their finger on it, although that's still how they identified it. And they were right. So, yeah. no, you know, points to them. Um, but um, but there was a certain, like, I became a popular kid. Mm. Mm-hmm. I went from being a total pariah to being actually a really popular kid. Um, and, you know, voted senior superlative and things mm-hmm. like that um, by the other um by the other kids because they had there's a sort of grudging respect like they loved Elton John they maybe didn't think highly of him for being a gay guy but they still loved Elton John so didn't rule him out they loved my work on the stage and they thought I was funny and also they liked the way that I dealt with authority figures because mm. that was one of the the the, the flip sides of Maud and the Ula game was it was not limited to other children Everybody. Mm. It was. I was an equal opportunity destroyer. I laid everybody to waste who, right. who got in my way, and authority figures were not the least of it. And they were frequently a lot of raised eyebrows yeah. from adults in that time period because I didn't take shit off of anybody. 
Well, part of the reason we're talking about your origin story is because we are headed today on today's True Crime TV Club to the state in which you spent a lot of time. Yeah. We had a dialogue about whether or not you'd consider it your home state, but it is South, the state of South Carolina. You know, my parents live there, my sister is there now, and my brother and, and sister-in-law live there, and my nephew. So a lot of my family, and I was, other than South Carolina, I mean, other than South Car- Southern California, right. South Carolina is where I've, I've lived maybe the largest period of my life, short of, I mean, California is really my home now, but mm-hmm. I've lived here longer than anywhere else. But I was there for a number of years from like sixth grade through, so probably from like 13 to 30. Mm, that's a lot of years. That's a lot of years. Yeah. Um, we moved a number of times in South Carolina, but but I was there pretty solidly for that time frame. So it's, you know, it is very much. Louisiana for me was 10 to 20, about 10 to 20. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, a comparable period, maybe a little bit longer than that, but whatever. And then I went to New York right after college and then back to South Carolina for a bit. Right. And then... Um, and then here, but that bit was included in the original 13 to 30. So this is the last episode in our, our hometown horrors month. From Monk's Corner. From Monk's Corner, not South a Carolina. Part of, I'm not from, that's from down near the Charleston area. That uh-huh. is, however, the home to um, the friend of mine, the girlfriend of mine who stole my boyfriend. Oh, really? Yeah, so yeah. I do have some kind of connection to that. Yeah, yeah. I was... Um, she had been dating a guy for um, a really long... We worked together, and we were pretty mm-hmm. good friends. And she had been dating a guy for a really long time. I think they were even engaged. And they broke up, and it was really bad for her. And I, so I was trying to, like, you know, be a good friend. And so I included her on social stuff I was doing, and including going to... Like, I went. she went to the fair with the guy I was dating... And me, and I had to go to a big party. I had done all of this promotion for this new museum that was opening um, there in Columbia. And so I invited her to come with us. You know, it was a big formal event, and I invited her to come with us. And so she did. And after the big party at the, whatchamacallit, we went over to the gay club to go dancing because that's what everybody did. I think most of the people mm. from the, the party adjourned to the gay club to go dancing. And at some point they went missing. I didn't know where they were. And I thought maybe they had gone outside for a smoke or, or whatever. You didn't have to go outside to smoke, but you could breathe. Um, and uh, they were on the hood of this... It's like a painting in my head. Mm. They were on the hood of this yellow Mercedes under a streetlight. So it was really like almost a spotlight overhead. And the car was yellow and really sort of vibrantly colored. And they were on the, the hood of the the car. And I was standing in the darkness. And I just was so shocked. Mm. And I just stood there and... um. And stared, and eventually one or the other of them saw me, and they stopped and started standing up and, like, putting their clothes back to rights. And I just turned and walked off and went to my car, and they followed me, and they both got in the back seat. He didn't get in the front seat with me, and I didn't really even know what to do. So I drove them—I drove us 
back to her house, and they both got out mm. at her house and went up to the front door and went inside. And so I just drove off. And <laughs> it was kind of, it was certainly the end of that, yeah. of that relationship. And then it destroyed our friendship at work. And, and it destroyed a lot of my relationships at work. I was excluded from, I was, it was at the holidays. And so I was, I was uninvited to the holiday parties so that they could come as a couple because obviously mm. being a straight couple was more legitimate than being a gay couple. And he told people that I was obsessed with him, even though he was this kind of drunken loser who worked mm. at the library, which nothing's wrong with working at the library, but I was actually the creative director at one of the mm. fastest growing advertising agencies in the country. So I was doing better than him. I was a better catch than he was, but mm. he was cute. And uh, apparently he convinced everybody that I was somehow obsessed with him and uh, and they believed him. Wow. So Monk's Corner. Yeah. Woohoo. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And everyone here at TDPS would like to congratulate my co-host and best friend, Christopher Rice, also known as steamy romance author C. Travis Rice, on the publication of Sapphire Storm, the third novel in his Sapphire Cove series. Sapphire Storm is the drama-filled tale of a forbidden romance that exposes old secrets and incurs the wrath of the powerful and the famous. It went on sale March 7th, along with the first two entries in the series, Sapphire Sunset and Sapphire Spring, it's available wherever ebooks are sold. Congratulations, C. Travis Rice, and congratulations, Christopher. So, Monk's Corner. Monk's Corner is the epicenter of this installment of Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club. We're doing an episode of Murder Comes to Town entitled No Witnesses. It's season five, episode two. You do not need to have watched the episode. We're going to serve it up for you in such steaming detail you will feel like you have, only with the two of us in the room with you. And a lot more fun. <clears throat> it's August 27th, 2012, 2.30 a.m., Jennifer Hill has last heard from her 18-year-old daughter, Dana Woods, a few hours ago, and she has not yet come home, and she is getting very scared. She is interviewed, Miss Hill, and she tells us that her daughter told her she was at a drive-thru and about to give someone a ride home and that she'd be home herself shortly. She was in the company of her friend, 22-year-old June Gary, who was planning to spend the night. They're still not home an hour later, and her calls are going unanswered. They also interview Katie Woods, who is Dana's sister, and she fills in more of the timeline from that night. By the time three hours had passed with no answer, Jennifer is beyond terrified for her daughter's well-being. So at 3.30 a.m., she actually heads out looking for her with her husband, Leonard Hill, also interviewed. He is Dana's stepfather. They are literally drive down dark country roads, shining a flashlight into ditches beside the road. I just can't think of anything more terrifying. And that part of the world is really like, it's low country, South Carolina, and that would be a dark place to be lost. Yeah. On the road to Homa. You know, like that kind of world. Yeah. 
By 4.30 a.m., they meet a sheriff's deputy at the local gas station. They explain the situation to him, and he says what they often do in these instances, that not enough time has elapsed because she is technically an adult. She's 18 years old. She's saving money for law school. She's got her own car. So there's not much they can do. But they continue looking, and they also continue calling people. At 6.30 a.m., she calls June Gary's mom. June is the friend who was with Dana at the drive-thru and says, have you heard from our daughters? And she says, no. And what adds to their anxiety, well, beyond anxiety, what adds to their terror, really, is that June has an 18-month-old daughter at home who's staying with her own mother, and she constantly calls to check in on the daughter. And she is not called at all in the time frame we're talking about. So June's father and brother-in-law also join in the search. Uh, as you just said, the part of the state is very isolated. It's got a lot of back roads. It turns out June's family is more familiar with the landscape uh, because they've lived in the area their whole lives. So they really kind of penetrate some of the more rural parts of it. The car that they're looking for they think is going to be easy to spot because it has what they call some DYI repairs, meaning one of the doors is a different (laughs) color. So um, even so, they can't find it. Um, Then suddenly, they spot the car driving towards them down the in the other lane of the road. They pull a U-turn. This is the this is June's father. I think this is June's father and brother-in-law. Right. Yeah. The car comes towards them. It speeds past them. A man they don't recognize is driving it. They pull a U-turn very quickly and follow the guy, and then they reach a three-way split in the road, and they have no sense of where the guy went. Right. Just awful. Anyway, uh, we interview Captain Rick Olick, who's now the chief of police, but he was the captain then. As soon as he hears the bare bones of this story, he decides to spring into action. Uh, The strange man driving the young woman's vehicle by itself. Yeah, that's just... That's the something's wrong. They get the cell phone location data, and I think as we have learned from doing a lot of these stories, cell phone data gives you a ping that covers a three mile area. It's not a pinpoint location when it comes in. Yeah, and because it's just wilderness, it's a lot of nothing. Yeah. We get some backstory on Dana. She was the middle child, uh, which made her want to stand out more. She was often posting videos online. She was holding down two different jobs to save money for law school. Her mother describes her as her stubborn, hard-headed kid, hence the law school ambitions. (laughs) Um, June, her good friend, is four years older than her, but they've been friends since, I guess, since Dana was in freshman year of high school. Uh, June is also strong-willed and outspoken, and she works hard stocking shelves at the local box store to support her baby daughter. So the thing they don't know, Dana called her mother before she went missing and said, we are going to give somebody a ride. She didn't say who it was or where they were going. So that is the missing piece. Um, they find The police find out pretty quickly that she had an on-again, off-again boyfriend named Chris Feathers. Uh, They'd have big fights, get over it, and then get back together again. There's another boy in the picture named Rodney. They weren't exactly clear what was going on with him. But meanwhile, while the police are questioning June's family, they mentioned that June had a friend who lived up near the area where the car was spotted, and his name is Arthur Chavis. So the cast of characters here is growing, and the list of people they have to question is also growing. So they go to Chris Feathers first. A lot of people for a small town. I think I almost all everybody in Monk's Corner is going to be in this story before we get done with it. Yeah. 
Um, they go to question Chris Feathers. This is the on-again, off-again boyfriend Dana's reported to have. He tells police that he's been trying to call Dana every 10 minutes, that he's even gone out looking for her himself, and that the last time he saw her was at her house the night before around 9.30 p.m. or 10 p.m. He says he then went to see a friend of his in Somerville where he stayed until 2 a.m., he doesn't want to give the name of the friend. Everything from the beginning about Chris was like, what? Like, I'm sorry, excuse me? <laughs> yeah, like. And I, they they actually, like, was that a reenactment or did they actually show him? Oh, it was saying, a reenactment. It was a reenactment. There I were. Was trying to remember. A lot of reenactments yeah, in this one. There were. And there was, and it was reenactments where they were actually acting, which yeah. I have to say. They weren't terrible. This, the, like, the kid was, like, I had enough pause from seeing him that I was actually, did we actually meet him? And I was like, that can't be true because it was a very sort of casual interview. But the, the general notion that they were putting forth was that he said, yeah, I don't know why you need that information. He would have nothing to do with her disappearance. And it's like, yeah, that's not how police procedure no, works, smart not. mouth. Yeah, but, exactly. Um, but, yeah, that that was a reenactment. Also, right? the the ping on Dana's cell phone that comes back is in the rough area of Somerville, which is where the friend supposedly lives. There's a ping on the frontage road over there on the Somerville side of Berkeley County, which is where this is all unfolding, and that gives you a 3-mile area, which expanded the previously known search area by another 3 miles. It was right. already a big enough search area, now it's got more added to it. And it's still a whole lot of nothing going on. So the detectives obviously are going to try to retrace her steps. And to do that, they get the security footage from the drive-thru she called her mother from. There's no evidence of another passenger in the vehicle other than the two young women, and there's also no evidence they're under duress. Meanwhile, on August 28, 2012, in the Marion National Forest, which is, I guess, roughly part of the search area, someone discovers a burnt-out vehicle off a back road. It's badly burned. It's burned down to a shell, as they describe it. And they actually show actual photos of the burned car. Uh, The secondary VIN number that's legible confirms it is, in fact, Dana's car. There are 9mm shells found nearby. There are also drag marks, which lead the police to the corpse of a white female with a very serious head wound. It appears to be the remains of Dana Woods. But there's no sign of June. Very weird. August 29th at 8 a.m., they do a reenactment, and I swear to God, I thought I was watching George R.R. R. Martin walk into a cemetery and put flowers on a grave. Because and it may ag- have been. It was a reenactment. Look, so. <laughs> maybe, maybe George needs some money. Yeah, yeah, maybe he needs a little extra cash. <laughs> now that the show's... Uh, Just happened to be in Monk's oh, Corner and thought, what the hell? He's going to take a little break and do some reenactments for crime shows. Um that unfortunately, this man, whoever he was in real life, discovered uh, the remains of June Gary. Can you imagine? In poor a cemetery. guy at finding a dead body in a cemetery. Jesus Christ, I would have lost my shit. So the two bodies were found 10 miles apart, but June's body is found about a mile or two from where June lived. And there appears to be a marker. Now, again, because some of this is reenactment, we don't know how real it is. They show a little red piece of fabric tied to a branch, and I'm like, this is a reenactment. And I'll say, because they were doing that, when they did show something that was a real crime scene photo, it would say real crime scene photo. 
And then they would say dramatic reenactment. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. that's if you start staging too much, you, you have to get into making these clear because you can't tell which is which after a while because so much is on video. But I think their point was in highlighting those two factors was that whoever had put the body there wanted her to be found. Yes. So the investigators talked to Arthur Chavez, who was on their list of uh, men who were associated with these two young and women. And who can't afford a whole pair of pants. He's otherwise known as Ray Ray. And the story quickly comes together that he really was interested in June and she wasn't. But he has no criminal record. And he's unemployed and seems like a total loser. I can't remember if that was just my observation or if someone on the special said that. But they might have because it kind of. You know, yeah, it's scanned. He lives very close to the crime scene. He claims he didn't know Dana at all. And he says the last time he talked to June was two weeks ago. But he would call her every day, and sometimes she wouldn't answer. Most of the time, it apparently. sounds like. If he went two weeks calling her every day, she yeah. did not answer most she of the time. She answered one time in a two-week period. They put his photo in a lineup and they show it to June's brother-in-law to see if he was the mystery man driving their car when they spotted him. He recognizes Chavez, as you pointed out earlier, it's an incredibly small town, but he says he's not the guy who was driving Dana's car. Which probably is better exoneration than you would get because it is such a small town. He actually knows who he's talking about and would have recognized him in the front seat of the car if he'd seen him there. So Chris Feathers' alibi is confirmed. That's Dana's on-again, off-again boyfriend who finally apparently coughed up the name of the friend he was at until 2 in the morning the night Dana went missing. Very interesting. The other gentleman is Rodney Waits, and he admits to cops that he had a crush on Dana. Uh, he's a local volunteer firefighter. He claims he was asleep at the fire station at the time she went missing, and that alibi is confirmed, I assume, by the, the other firefighters. Yeah, you couldn't get a much better alibi than yeah. that. And he's pretty cooperative. So he's eliminated rather quickly. Four days after the disappearance, a gas station clerk tells the cops that Chris Feathers has been telling people they should be careful about talking to the police, which is... A form of obstruction of justice, in it's, case you're not one, in case you're yeah, curious. You should tell pe not tell people that unless yeah. you're looking for some real pushback from authorities, if not right. an actual arrest and criminal charges. So the cops confront Chris. They don't arrest him, but they confront them. And he says his explanation is that he's heard someone tell him that the real killer is out there threatening people not to talk to the cops. So when he told people not to talk to the cops, he was just trying to warn them that the killer was out there making those Which threats. Which is a kind of a stretch, but he also says that he's going to, they, they, they say that they ask him who, and he says he doesn't really know, but that he's going to work and he thinks he might be able to find out. And so they say, oh, well, all right. If mm -hmm. you find out who it is, let us know. He actually seems to be more interested in helping them find the killer than, yeah. than being the killer. It's still not 100% conclusive, but it kind of covers a pretty fishy story about some kind of questionable behavior. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show, no spaces, and we'll do our best 
to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? So the sheriff's office receives a call from a woman named Amber Jenkins. And it looks like this is the result of Chris Feathers being willing to go out and kind of stir up who's been threatening people not to talk to the police. And she is a local gas station manager who says one of the girls who works for her um, has been finding out stuff about the murder from her boyfriend that's not on the news. And the boyfriend's name is Caleb Matlock, not to be confused with the detective Matlock, who is actually a good person who solves crimes on and television. not an complete idiot, which this apparently Caleb just... was. The girl's name is Anna Denver. That's Caleb's girlfriend. So the cops, they go and they talk to Anna. They find her semi-cooperative in their own words. She won't let them in because the children are, you know, mm-hmm. up. Yeah. And... Uh, she, but somehow they got inside. I, I missed this point. How did they get inside the house? Well, one of them went in to talk with the mother because she was looking uh, after the kids. Right. And Amber went out to the car to talk with the um, with the other officer. And while he was inside... The mother says to them, oh, Caleb Matlock? He just ran out the back door. So clearly the mom hates Caleb Matlock. If the mother and, and the, the girlfriend... And the girlfriend warned him. Yes, is telling the cops where to find her daughter's boyfriend, that means that mom does not like that he boyfriend. that way. So use, you know, shoot to kill would be my advice. Uh, so Caleb has run behind a local dumpster and is hurriedly trying to change clothes. Because he's an idiot. That's a sentence I don't want anyone to say about my life ever. He ran behind a local dumpster and attempted to change clothes. Right. Never. That's really, you want, that's that's kind of reputation destroying. He's got a bag there with a handgun inside it. Like because he's a genius. Everything about Caleb is dangerous bad news. Uh-huh. Uh, Mom was right. Mom was right about Caleb, a true crime story. Ms. Denver knew what she was talking about. Okay, so they bring Caleb in, obviously. (laughs) By one angle, (laughs) hanging upside down because he's a moron. Um, He'll talk to the cops about everything except the incident. The incident being Dana and June's murder. But he'll tell them about his last birthday party and what movie he's seen recently. Like, why would they want to talk to him about anything else? I thought that was an odd point. He claims he did not know Dana and only met her once. He claims June called him the night they vanished and asked him if they could go check on his child because it was the child's birthday, That's, which suggests that he and June were very close. Um, he admits to helping. So we're getting closer to the incident now. He admits to helping burn the car. He admits to being involved in the, a crime, in the crime. 
He admits to being with both the girls the night they disappeared and were killed. Then he starts backtracking and says, but I didn't shoot anybody. And there was another guy there. So that's the part of the crime he doesn't want to talk about. And then, but, and then there was another guy there, but I'm not going to tell you who the guy was, and I want to talk to a lawyer now. So just a genius, this guy. Just, just I mean, he mastermind. should have really just stayed behind that dumpster. So uh, the twist in this story is that Arthur Chavis, remember who Ray Ray, who was brought in earlier, who would call June every day even though she wouldn't answer, his alibi for the mur- night of the murder, which he gave them previously, was Caleb. Caleb Matlock. So these two are fucked. So fucked. Um, he denies everything when they bring him in, and he says, then he says, I didn't know he was going to kill them. Which is a terrible kind of denial. Yeah. Like, okay, but you know that he did, right? Right. Which apparently he does. Allegedly, this was the plan, and I use the word plan loosely. Really, yes, very loosely in terms of planning. They were going to steal Dana's car so they could go rob a woman who was in charge of filling the local ATMs. So basically, they convinced these two poor women to give them a ride out into the woods, and they told them, I lost my wallet out there. Will you help me go find it? They offered her $50 to give them the ride, and... June might have been inclined to say yes because she might have had a crush on Caleb. And Dana, the loyal friend to June, wanted to do the best to help her friend. Meanwhile, Ray Ray is completely doped up and, quote, walking slow. And he said when they finally got out there, Caleb just shot both women. This story, like, there are holes the size. I, okay, anyway, I'll just get all the way through it, and then we can oh, hear I'm the sorry. Eric Shaw I'm sorry, these morons' story wasn't totally <laughs> credible to you? So they both rat on each other, and the chief of police tells us he doesn't believe this was just over a car, that more happened in the woods that night and will never know. Uh, four words that drive the two of us crazy here at TDPS Presents Christopher right. and Eric. So on August 2014, Caleb pleads guilty to two counts of murder, arson, and armed robbery. Nine months later, author pleads guilty to armed robbery and manslaughter. Eric Shawquin, what the fuck do you think was going on in this story? Honestly. <laughs> like, some stupid people with some bad plans. I often talk about this in a lot of different contexts, but... I, you know, the failure of the American education system was going on here. Mm. Stupid people or I- ignorant people, I suppose mm. I should say. I don't know if these people were necessarily stupid, but these Define were. Define the difference, though, because I think people well, gloss over the difference. I think he, I think that they don't have a lot of information at their yeah. fingertips. It doesn't necessarily mean they're not capable of retaining more information, but very little has been presented to them. They have not been challenged to think yeah. much. Mm-hmm. Whether they're capable of it or not, I don't know. I think it's easy to kind of drop into that, but I don't actually want to, you know, to slander people who actually have learning disabilities. No. These may just be ignorant people. Right. Um, they may not have any difficulty learning. They may just not have been exposed to it. But people who are poorly educated and underemployed and not looking for a lot of opportunities have very limited choices and a very limited palette from which to select the choices they do have. And so the idea of robbing a woman who is filling up ATMs with a car they stole from two girls they met at the Whataburger, Mm. um, 
is, I guess, might seem like a good plan to somebody who's really not apprised as to what a good plan, as you pointed out, like Mm -hmm. plan was a very loose definition of the term. There was very little plan involved. I think probably there was more of trying to get the girls out to the woods to get something from the girls that they wanted from the girls. It was probably an attempted rape scenario or something of that nature. They killed... Dana to get her to out of the way and then we're going oh, to God, rape June. Yeah. Or I Which don't, would explain why the bodies were deposited in different places. Right, One I, might have lived longer. I don't know. Yeah. I don't yeah, I don't Horrible. think they were killed at the same time. I think they killed Dana and then but but why would Dana be with the burnt out car and June would be far away? That's I guess they had two cars and one of them followed, mm-hmm. but I don't know if they had two cars. There's, I don't have a lot of data, but it would seem to me that the crimes against these women were the result of maybe worse crimes that they were attempting against these women. I don't know. But Ray Ray was a frustrated young man who was attracted to June and not getting anywhere. Mm-hmm. And then she turns up dead after a midnight ride with him. Mm-hmm. Okay. So maybe that's a possibility. Caleb, she had a crush on Caleb. And so he was trying to support her friend who was having crushed. Maybe I, I don't. And I Ray don't Ray know. is maybe using Caleb as bait to get June to go along with his plan. Maybe, yeah, just... maybe so. I or maybe he shot June because he was jealous because she was interested in Caleb. I there is a there's a lot of possibilities here, but it seems to me that if you needed to steal a car to rob the woman from the ATM, I would steal the ATM woman's car. Mm-hmm. And just drive away with the money and leave her there or tie her up by the side of the road. Or if you're going to shoot somebody, you know, I'd shoot her. She's nowhere involved in this story and they're nowhere near any ATMs and they never get anywhere. And they burn the car, which they were stealing to rob ATMs. So why would you do that? And because the car is in such a remote location, there has to have been a second car, in which case they didn't need to steal a car. They could just have taken the car. They obviously already had. One of them was driven out to the location to look for the wallet or whatever. The other one was there waiting. They tried to ambush them for whatever reason, and it went badly, and the girls got killed. I, that That's sort of my best take on what probably happened. It looks like they got charged with all of the things they need to be charged with, except maybe attempted rape. Mm-hmm. Um, so, eh. Yeah. You know, go to jail forever. Sure. That works for me. If you were the family, would you want to know, would you be determined to know what really happened? Or would you, do you think you would take this attitude of they got charged with what they should be charged with? You know, like, it's really hard to say how you're going to react in a tragedy. I've seen enough of these things and enough families interviewed. We even had the experience when with the situation with Billy's family. We, mm-hmm. When they got a confession to the murder, it was also clear that they didn't have enough of a case to really take the case to court. Right. And we part of the reason we had to be silent about knowing that they had actually found the kill, Billy's killer mm-hmm. was they wanted to address that both to the DA's office and then subsequently to the family, and the family was satisfied. They, yeah. like... Billy's murder had been found and was going to spend the rest of her life in jail. And so mm-hmm. they were kind of like, okay, you know, yeah. like none none of it was going to bring Dana or June back. Mm-hmm. And so I tend to think that I would probably be like, 
okay, we don't really know what happened, but what I know what happened that counts to me is they killed my daughter. Right. Or my daughter's best friend or whatever, like, and they're going to go to jail for murder. So mm-hmm. that that seems like, you know, the circumstances of how it came to pass. Yeah. I I think it might be more painful to find out than it would be worth. And since the ultimately the penalty would be pretty much the same. Yeah. I don't think that it would have I been I think worth it's one it. of those situations where you don't know until you're in it. Yeah. Right, how you're going to feel. I might be like, you know, I'm pretty much the crusader, so I might be all about yeah. wanting it. What do you think? I, I just, I, I tend to think that you'd want to be done with it. And if you were getting that outcome. I think I would become obsessed with how the person I love spent their last moments on earth. and <sighs> But I might deal with that obsession as an unhealthy and unhelpful thing that doesn't serve them and their memory ultimately. And I think I would, I would probably seek the counsel of wise friends like you, um, people in my life, and the experts. Because it, when, when you're in that moment, as I imagine it, the ones who have been through that before are your, your legal counsel. Your lawyer, if you're, if you're dealing with a lawyer who has experience in that field, they've represented other victims, they've represented other loved ones. Or if you're dealing with the district attorney, for instance, the prosecutor. And they can... I would probably ask them, what, do, what have you seen bring people down, bring down the survivors? Like, what, have you, what choices have you seen them not overcome where they just can't let go? Like, because I don't want to salute the, the memory of my loved one by destroying my own life right. in their name. And I think I would try to get advice and counsel and not, not be completely overcome by uh, an obsessive quest for anything that I thought wasn't going to actually celebrate who they were. And I, I think it's a very challenging thing not to become obsessed with how somebody died in general. I think it's true if your loved one died of a cancer or of a disease, it's you are ultimately in charge of how you remember them. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, when violent crime is introduced, you, I think it leaves you with this feeling that the people you loved most were so alone in that moment that a desire to know what they went through is almost like letting them be less alone. But it's only in your head. We did, um, uh, on Thanksgiving, I don't know if it was last Thanksgiving, a couple of Thanksgivings ago, either last Thanksgiving or before, we did two different Thanksgiving family massacres. Yeah. A mistake we will not make again. Horrible. um, Because it was twice as horrible. But the one that I did, the, the, the killer came in and after the Thanksgiving, while they were doing cleaning up and putting the leftovers in containers and killed um, a lot of the family members and killed the daughter, the very young daughter mm. of the the host, the, the couple who were hosting the events, both of whom survived, but the daughter was, was killed. And I mean, she was maybe 10, like mm. she was a little girl. It was hideous. And he was a family member and mm. it was, off, and it was jealousy, and mm-hmm. it was the, the motives were horrible. And he took a plea deal, and um, as a result, got life rather than death sentence. And the the couple who lost their daughter are were interviewed in the special, and they said we were very disappointed with his outcome. We wanted the death penalty. We wanted mm. to see him die for killing our daughters, and then. It's an interesting thing. It's something rare that I've seen in um, 
in these because usually they're more focused on the crime and the investigation. But they stayed with the couple. The couple was angry at first, and she was really bitter. And people said, you're a young couple. You should continue to live your life. You should try again. And she got pregnant again. Mm -hmm. Um, And she wasn't the... You know, they weren't the freshest egg. She was an Mm -hmm. older, she was not ancient, but she may have been 40, you know, like, so it was less of a sure thing, I would think, although I don't know, what do I know about it? But I think it becomes harder to get pregnant as you get older. Um, Anyway, and then they named her after the daughter's favorite doll, and she really became sort of the light of her life. And then Mm -hmm. they had another daughter, and they said oh, we're actually really glad that things turned out the way that they turned out because that spared us years of going to appeals Mm. and having to relive this crime over and relitigate this crime over and over again and allowed us to move forward and have the wonderful new life that we have with the daughters that we have now Mm -hmm. and to truly be thankful. They even still lived in the same house. Oh, my God. Which I think was kind of amazing to me. Um, I don't think I could do that. Um, but it really was eye-opening. And I think that even if this, my thoughts were, even if this family wasn't pleased with that outcome, or even if I wasn't pleased with that outcome, I think you might come to be when you realize what it might have spared you. Yeah. Yeah. Not to have to go through the, cause God, we've seen some of these where oh, the family God. has to sit in the courtroom while they show pictures of their family members torn to bits and mm-hmm. by, you know, high caliber gunfire or being stabbed or murdered and what I just, I can't think that that would be a better mm-hmm. um, outcome for anybody because in the end, the your loved one is gone. Mm-hmm. Like nothing you do or find out is going to change that. Mm-hmm. Nothing's going to, and that's the only thing you would really want to change. If yeah. you got the murderer and they're in jail, fine. You know, you're not bringing my loved one back. So, you know, keep it. Yeah. Anyway, I just, I just really, I had, we accidentally re-chose that. Yeah. And I, in order to make sure that we had done it before I actually looked at it and saw that segment again, really Mm -hmm. just the other day and was quite struck by it. I was like, wow, that is, because usually they just, and then that's the end and you don't really hear what happens to the victims afterwards. We had the same exception with the back to school where the -hmm. the fathers started the foundation and um, was doing training dogs to search for. And I got to tell you, this is the appeal of these types of stories to me are that the survivor stories or the investigator stories. I don't really enjoy deep dives into the minds of serial killers. I think we've been studying, not we, our society has been studying serial killers now for a long time, and we've not figured out anything very interesting. No. They're hideous. They're horrible. They get sexually aroused by pain, inflicting pain in others. They're predictable. They're no great spiritual or cosmic no. revelations in the mind of a serial killer. They're base. And so I, I'm not really that, but survivors, I mean, those are universal stories. How do we get over something terrible happening to us? That's universal, you know? And I think it also, you know, uh, the investigator, particularly when they're motivated by selflessness or, or, or dedication to something, that's also or an inspiring story. Or desire to get the victim's justice, yeah. that sense of closure that they need for having lost somebody. Doc, uh, doctor, <laughs> detective, right. Lamberti, Lamberti, yeah. who helped us with the. Sorry, John. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, who helped us with the? Um, 
who helped us, <laughs> who reached out to us around right. the investigation of, of Billy's yeah. murder, was somebody who had, I think, that kind of motivation. He wanted to help that family to find some closure, which we did, which right. was very much married with uh, our objectives for becoming involved in Billy's case to begin with. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I think that was a good run of Heartland Horrors that ended on a more uplifting note in terms of what we were talking about, at least, not the story yeah, itself. Yeah, I still feel terrible for those two families, with June and Dana's families, because yeah. it was such, they were so, such a senseless, stupid crime. If she really did die for $50, giving somebody a ride for $50, yeah. that just breaks my heart it's that shattering. she needed $50 enough to drive some boys out into the woods to kill her in the middle of the night. Yeah. I just, that's just heartbreaking to me. Horrible. So um, next week we'll have more surprises here at TDPS. We haven't quite figured out what we're, we're doing surprised. yet. But probably not as many French fries. Probably not Maybe as many. less French fries. We've learned our French fry lesson. <laughs> we're starting to believe that the idea that something was in the fries we just ate is spreading. Other people had the fries, and they're also believing that there was perhaps magic uh, mushrooms or edibles. I, I had the fries, and I've been fine right You had a so. few fries. You didn't eat as much as I, I think did. think other people are just much lightweight. I ate all the fries. And I really just had a couple. Until then and forever after. <laughs> I'm shutting down the French fry dialogue. It's getting and too close. If you haven't come by the VIPP. Oh, yes. Um, special investigation group. <laughs> Let me look at whatever I said we're calling we, it. I said when we first came up with it, we need to write down what it's called because we're going to forget it. It's the VIPP Insider episode is what we call them. And we have a Facebook group called the VIPPs. That stands for Very Important Party People. Right. And to get into it, you need to sign up for our newsletter, which there's no charge for any of this. And you have to go to uh, thedinnerpartyshow.com. The sign-up is there. And then you can join the group and uh, join in the discussions that we're having with people at this point about yeah. the television show, the Netflix television show, Bodies. But who knows what else will um, want to have special edition, no, special investigate special... Inside. Inside edition. Insider. <laughs> I'm just going to let you keep going. I'm just going to. Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> Upside down, Stranger Things. Yes. Um, in a VIPP Insider episode. Right. Yeah. That's, uh, that's what we're discussing now, but who knows what we'll discuss next, and you'll never find out if you don't sign up. Absolutely. All right. Until next time and forever after, I'm Christopher Ryan. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.